All right, so this morning we are in chapter 17 at the very end of Samuel. There's, there's a little weird part there that I left off last week that I just want to mention before we move on to, the, to chapter 18. So we'll be doing uh, verses uh, at the very end of 17 and then going all the way through verse 16 of chapter 18. So before we do that, let's, let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for um, calling us and our children into covenant with you. We thank you, Lord, that we could all gather here together to worship you uh, together as the body and bride of Christ. I pray, Lord God, that um, as we open your word now and we look at the ministry of Samuel and David and Jonathan and Joseph and Jesus, that we would grow to be more like them, that we would imitate them in in our love for one another and our love for you, that we would be uh, jealous, Lord God, uh, godly, have a godly jealousy for our our own marriages, for the marriages of one another, and for um, the marriage of Christ and his bride, the church. We thank you for your word. Thank you for opening it to us now, and we pray that you would uh, enlighten us so that we would not only understand it, but apply it. We thank you, and we praise you, and amen. Amen. Now, the end of chapter 17 has a bit of a puzzle, and, the, and, and what, you always have to be careful with things like this, because what you don't want to do is introduce confusion and doubt that people didn't already have. Now, many of you probably read the end of chapter 17 and never thought there was anything weird about it. But what I like to do is occasionally highlight that in in the world of commentary, in the world of sermons, in the world of uh, applying the scriptures, you get some pretty weird stuff. And uh, there is a disease that some people think that that, um, Saul had, and that's how modern people deal with the spiritual element that that, that is going on there. They attribute what he does and the spirit, this evil spirit. They talk about the fact that in the Old Testament they were all a bunch of ignoramuses. They didn't get it, so they called it a spirit. It wasn't really a spirit. It's some illness. And part of it is that he ceases to recognize people as if he's just going senile or something. But I want to say emphatically that's not it. Okay? And, and, I, and this is what I mean. If you look at, at 1 Samuel chapter 17, if you look at verses 55 through 58, you see this reaction uh, of Saul. You see right out of the gate, um, David has killed Goliath, and this is the first reaction. This is Saul's reaction. It says, As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this? Youth. And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. Now, and this is, this is what happens now. In chapter 16, David was introduced to Saul as the player of music who uh, helped him control his, his spiritual issues. Then it, it appears now as if Saul has never heard of him before. But that's actually not at all what it says. And if you look carefully, he doesn't say, Who in the world is that kid? He says, whose family is it? Now, I mean, how, how would the monarch of a nation remember the familial ties of everyone who works for him? Um, if anyone who has a job, right, does your boss always remember the name of all your kids? Uh, I love everyone here. I can't always remember the name of everyone's kids, right? You're like, wait, whose kid is that? Is that a, is that a Lilia? I don't know. <laughs> and so right here... What, what was it that Saul promised? Saul said, I will make your family free, and I will give you my daughter in marriage. And now suddenly, this kid is going to be his son-in-law. So he was like, whoa, whose kid is this? And, and if you're a good parent in any way, shape, or form, it's one of the first questions you would ask. Who is this kid's family again? Because now they're free, and now it's my family. 
and, and I want to know. And so two, two things happen here. One of them is that they get into this illness, and they want to dis, disprove all the spiritual elements of the story. The other thing they do is they, they try to make um, some sort of contradiction in storyline. Uh, but the ancient historians could care less about chronology, <laughs> right? How, uh, and I, I run into this all the time. I teach history, history classes, and I'll be suddenly talking about 1858, and then I'll be talking about 1758, and then I'll be talking about 808, and I don't go in order because I don't care to go in order. The point is the story that you're telling. And, and for the biblical authors, if you go to Genesis 1 and 2, you go to this 16 and 17 and 18 in this chapter here, you do look at the Gospels. Exactly what's the chronological order of the Gospels? They, they, they aren't as concerned with chronology as modern people are. What they want with these two, as I call them, origin stories of David, is they want to put them side by side and let them com- you comparing them to one another, they're sort of in dialogue with one another. And this actually has more to do with wisdom literature than history as we know it, right? Um, have you guys ever, have you ever read biographies where it's just like they start with uh, the, the main, bio, the person they're writing about, they talk about his grandparents, and then they work their way like all the way down through his life? I find that to be very boring. Like I like when they start with his death, and, and then they work their way backwards. Like, yeah, right? I like movies where you're not exactly sure what exactly the time frame is because I like the story part of it. Uh, a lot of modern people don't like that. So they, they run into a lot of trouble here. But it's not trouble. As I've already said, Saul wants to know who the kid is because now it's his son-in-law. He wants to know who the, the family is because he's going to set him free. And, and so it, it, this is what I love about modern people. Um, they ask dumb questions that they can't answer and then make it seem as if the word of God can't answer them. Um, and as a person who reads a lot of commentaries, I see this a lot. And I just wanted to share the burden with you all. <laughs> So be very careful when you're reading about Saul and about David and about timelines in the Bible because it's not, it's not a modern textbook. Okay, Dealing with Saul's initial reaction, putting that aside, fulfilling his vow to the victor, we move right into chapter 18. The events occur here, bang, bang, bang. We, we have not left at the beginning of 18 the battlefield where he has slain Goliath. That's an important detail. They don't, they don't immediately go back, like, and it's weeks later in the throne room, the the story takes up right there on the battlefield. There are six uses of the the verb to love. Okay, that's what this whole chapter is going to be about, is now these various reactions to David. How are people going to react to this guy who just killed Israel's enemy? Six uses of the verb to love, David being the object of that love. In verse 1 and 3 and 16, 20 and 22 and 28, all through chapter 18, there are a lot of people in love with David. Everyone seems to love David. Everyone seems to be drawn to him. Jonathan, Saul's son, loves David. Michael, Saul's daughter, loves David. And we will explore that next week. We will see exactly how, uh, what happens when David becomes Saul's son-in-law. But all Israel and Judah love David. Everybody loves David. Saul stands in awe and fears David. The text says so three times in in verses 12, 15, and 29. Esteem for David in this chapter is placed side by side with envy. What you have is a whole bunch of people love David. How could you not? And then what you have is Saul who hates him, Saul who envies him. These people want to reward him. These people want to make him a champion. These people want to almost worship him. And and all Saul wants to do is kill him. And, And in this, you see the Christian life. The, response, the varying responses to, to David are the various responses that people have to Jesus. 
And because you're in Jesus, these are the various responses that people um, have to you, right? Did anybody have as dear a relationship before they were Christian as now that they're Christian? Like, I had friends when I wasn't a believer, and it, 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 it's nothing like now. Um, I mean, I jokingly, I joke with Dean all the time that we made a, we cut a covenant to one another with one another because our souls are united. And that always made him a little uncomfortable, but I don't care. Right? I love the man. And, 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 like, and I didn't understand what that was like in my old life, in my unbelieving life. Also, we pray, I mean, have you, did, have you ever praised someone as well as you do now? Those of you who were not believers and now you're believers, right? Think, think we really, we, we are capable of seeing people as God sees them. And, and that is one of the beautiful things about being a Christian. You can see the image bearers as being image bearers. You can say, this is a person that Jesus died for. This is something they've, they've loved their wife well. They've succeeded. And we can rejoice with those who rejoice. And we weep with those who, who weep because we have a deeper understanding of, 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 the, of the emotional life. And, and all through this story, that's what you see. You see all these different reactions to David. And it's all the various reactions you get to Jesus and all the various reactions that I think we receive in our own lives. So this whole chapter 18 is a picture of the Christian life. This is what it means to be a Christian. The path to glory and obedience to God is a path of danger and trouble as much as it is a path of blessing. The Lord's presence has made David a charismatic figure while also making him an object of scorn, of fear, and violence. Saul, the most powerful man in Israel, is going to try to kill him (laughs) while everybody else is trying to praise him. That's what this story is about. So let's not wait any longer, and let's get into it. So chapter 18, verse 1 through 4, this is what we read. As soon as he has finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house, Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Now, a good question is this. All through chapter 17, where's Jonathan? There's Israel on the battlefield. Jonathan is clearly also on the battlefield because as soon as the battle is over, there he is. So for 40 days, while Goliath is mocking the people of God, mocking the armies of God, and mocking the God of Israel, Jonathan, who is faithful, Jonathan, who is brave, Jonathan, who loves the Lord more than his father does, what, why didn't he come out and slay Goliath? Has he fallen like his father has fallen? Is he now uh, an unfaithful son like his father is? He's a brave warrior, and he didn't come out and slay Goliath himself. Perhaps Jonathan, knowing that the house of Saul had been rejected in chapter 13, verse 14, and in chapter 15, verse 23, hung back. Maybe he did not want to go out and tempt the Lord because he knew that his household had been rejected by God. This is how, and, and this is my argument. He loves God so much that he knows that God is not with Saul and his house. He knows that, that God is not with his father. And so now he is hanging back. He knows that someone is going to replace his dad, and he's giving, he's, he understands how God works. Remember Jonathan's story. He climbed up a cliff and attacked the Philistines and killed them, a giant of sorts. He sees this is clearly this is probably going to be the opportunity for God to bring forth whoever it is that he said was greater than my father. And I believe there's a, a, a profound amount of humility that Jonathan is showing us here. 
He's not going out there and doing it himself because he knows that someone greater than him, someone greater than his father is coming, and so he takes the lesser place. He makes way for him. In chapter 15, verse 28, Samuel told Saul, one of your neighbors is greater than you, and God is going to make him king. And I believe Jonathan took that to heart. Jonathan recognized in David a kindred spirit. I just imagine Jonathan on a cliff watching this whole thing lay out with David and, and Goliath, and he is just delighted. Look at that kid. I recognize that. That is a faithful kid. Look at that. I wish that was my kid. And so he brings him back, and he says, here, let's cut a covenant with one another. And cutting a covenant, they call it cutting a covenant for this reason. You take an animal and you chop it in half, and you lay the two pieces on the ground, and the two people making a covenant walk down the middle of it saying, if we violate this covenant, let this happen to us. May we be torn to pieces as these animals are. Right? And if you think, this is why the language of covenant in the Bible um, it is what it is. I mean, this is why God says, don't tear asunder what the Lord has brought together, because what you're doing when you break a covenant is you're tearing it in pieces like you would this animal. And so Jonathan wants to cut a covenant with David. He, 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 he recognizes the greatness of David. He recognizes that God is with him. He sees a kindred spirit. He says, I know what this is like because this is what happened to me. And instead of getting envious, instead of being jealous, instead of... Um, you know, being bitter and angry about it, he rejoices in it and elevates David. And he takes off of all things his robes and, and his armor and his sword and all the um, regalia of his position as the crown prince, and he puts them upon David. He utterly renounces his position in Israel. He gives it over to David. He designates David formally as his replacement. He gets that the Lord has... has um, Right? He, he knows that the Lord is with him, but he understands that the Lord has rejected their house. And so he's not going to stand in the way. He's not going to stand in the way. He gives it everything that he has over to David. Not only does this demonstrate his unbelievable humility, but his devotion to David. Now, going from here, David's pursuit of the kingdom going forward is established by two people. God has anointed him through Samuel and the, and the crown prince has turned over his rights to the crown, rights to the throne. And so David is like, well, nothing stands in my way now. I'm going to be king. Because when I'm honored by God and I'm honored by godly men, who can stop me? Who can stop me? Nothing's going to stop me. And he draws a great deal of strength from this going forward. Now, previously, David had rejected Saul's armor, refusing to be clothed like a king of the nations. But he accepts here the armor of Jonathan, who fought, like David, in the power of the Lord. That was the story about Jonathan. He said, the Lord is with us or he's not. So let's go up and let's fight. And, and, and Jonathan and David, are their armor, their armor is the same, and their armor is Yahweh. That's why David accepts it from him and rejected it from Saul, because he doesn't want anything to do with Saul's way of being king, Saul's way of being a warrior. Also, it's interesting, in a single day, this is how great David really is. Not only has he gotten Goliath's sword, the greatest sword of the Philistine army, he's now been given the crown prince's sword, and he has both the greatest sword of the Philistine army and the greatest sword of Israel's army. In a single day, he was, the king put his clothes on him, and he rejected that, and now the crown prince is putting his clothes on him. And this must have been quite a day. You, you would imagine, David, perhaps, if you were like me, or you, getting a little heady here, right? Look at all, look at all this attention. Man, the hype is good. I'm going to get a book deal. Look at all this. This is amazing. I'm going to do the tour. Somebody call the Gospel Coalition and get me 
give me a slot next year in the big conference. Like, I imagine his head swelling. But what we're going to see is it doesn't. He doesn't care about all this. He receives it, but it's not what he puts his faith in. It's not what he rejoices in. Now, what we see in Jonathan and David here is the proper response that a Christian ought to have to Jesus. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus says, deny yourself, which would be more properly understood as renounce yourself. I don't like the phrase deny yourself because it, it seems like, what, don't eat the donut? Deny yourself the food? Like, I, like that phrase in English just doesn't make as much sense to me. I don't, and I don't think it does a good job with what the Greek word means because the Greek word doesn't just mean, you know, hold off on having extra pancakes. And that's what I always think of when I think of denying something. No, I won't have a cigar today, guys. I had one yesterday. No, what Jesus is saying is renounce yourself. Utterly renounce yourself. And what this means is to put aside voluntarily, to repudiate, to disown yourself, to completely transfer your crown rights over to Jesus Christ, just as Jonathan has done. Right? All, all, I am no longer myself. I'm no longer in control of myself. I'm no longer in control of my will. I'm no longer in control of anything. My thoughts are not my own. It's Christ or nothing. And, and we go, and this is what Jesus wants from us. He wants us to come and lay our crown rights at his feet, just like Jonathan has done to David. Jesus, as Paul tells us, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Now, David has, is going to be Jonathan's brother. He's going to be the son-in-law of the king. Now, is he grasping after this position? Does he come to Jonathan and say, okay, hand it over, buddy. I don't know if you know this, but Samuel anointed me. So that sword is mine. That armor is mine. Your robes are mine. No, he, he doesn't do that. And, and this is why the Jonathan-David thing is so remarkable. They, they are, well... Also, by the way, Jonathan is old enough to be his father. They have this, this relationship, this discipleship relationship, and where they are completely on board one another missionally. And they recognize one another a great deal of humility. And this is why they just go back. They can't, they can't honor one another enough. Right? David honors Jonathan. He's not taking and grasping anything from him. And Jonathan offers David by freely giving it all to him. Only faith can make us willing to take the lesser place. Only faith can do this. If you do not have faith, you will not take the lower place. Because what we understand that God is the one who rises what's, raises up what's lowly. And if we feel like he's not going to do that, we will grasp after whatever, right? We will grasp after the higher place. We will grasp after the higher honor. We will grasp after the glory. But if we understand that it's only the Lord who lifts up, then we will willingly take the lesser place. John the Baptist said in John chapter 3, verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 through 21, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Faith causes us to surrender our crown rights to Jesus, who is, in fact, Israel's true king. Jonathan's response to David is the model for all of us. Spurgeon said this, I have now con concentrated all my prayers into one, that one prayer into this, that I may die to self and live wholly to him, 
it seems to me to be the highest stage of man, to have no wish, no thought, no desire, but Christ, to feel that it did not matter what became of oneself, so that one's master was always exalted. And this is, what, this is what you see John the Baptist do to Jesus. This is what you see Jonathan do to David. This is what you, you see, true humility and true faith in not this graspy way of going after power, but in laying everything down at the Lord's feet, trusting in him to lift up what is lowly. And this is just the first, res- <laughs> this is the first response to David. Others respond um, even, even more profoundly. It's, it's amazing how everyone receives David. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 5. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now, see, you see the, you see the chronological problem there, don't you? So far, what we've seen happens on the battlefield right where they killed Goliath. Now there's this verse dropped in there that seems to be somewhat um, a, a kind of a summary of what Saul and David do after this. And then now where we're going to, we go into verse 6, we go right back to what happened right after the battle. Because the writers of the Bible don't care about chronology as much as we do. But you see in this summary that it refers to the success of David. And this is something that the authors are very interested in expounding. In verse 5 and 14 and 15 and 30, they talk about the fact that David was successful. Now, this is theologically significant. According to the Torah, prosperity is a reward for keeping the Sinai covenant. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 9. Therefore, keep the words of this covenant and do them that you may prosper in all that you do. If you want to prosper, you keep the covenant. The Deuteronomistic authors are using this language from Torah because they want to bring these promises to mind. Because the Deuteronomistic history, it's been a while since we talked about this, but all these historical books in the Bible... They, they were um, compiled by prophets later on because they were trying to show that the word of God from Deuteronomy had been kept. If you follow me, I will bless you. If you reject me, I will not. I will curse you. That's what it says in Deuteronomy. And, and later on in the exile period, the prophets are trying to get Israel to return the Lord. And, and they're trying to convince them. If you return to him, he says in Deuteronomy that he will return to you. He will bring you back. So then they compile this history showing, look, all of these different places, it's a, it's a plot point history of Israel and how God kept his word to Israel. And, he, and what they want to, us to see here is that keeping the law of God is the path of prosperity. And, and what do I mean by that? Right? Are, are we going to get out our wallets now and talk to them? Is this going to be one of those moments? No, we're not going to do that. What we mean by prosperity is the biblical form of prosperity, not that you're going to get rich and drive a Mercedes. Not to insult anyone who drives a Mercedes. <laughs> Steve, do you have a Mercedes right now? No. Somebody does. Doug, you still have a Mercedes? No, you're fine, brother. Yeah, see, he got rid of it. <laughs> right? I don't mean you're going to get rich. What, I'm go- what, what we mean by that is God is going to bless you. Right? And, and how is he blessing David? How did he bless Jesus? Was it, was it because Jesus was so rich and had a giant house? No, 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 no. But what they want us to understand, what they want Israel to always understand, is when you obey the word of God, God keeps covenant with you. He's faithful to you, and he prospers you and blesses you. All of these references allude back to Joseph, the patriarch, in Genesis. 
We read in Genesis chapter 39, verse 2 through 4, The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him and made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. Genesis 39, verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. A comparison to Joseph indicates exactly the kind of life David is going to lead. The storyline of Joseph moved from suffering to glory, and so will David's. It was also, of course, the story of Jesus. It's the story of all of the disciples of Jesus. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 26, we read of Samuel. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. It says of David's greater descendant in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Glory is promised to those who keep covenant with God. That doesn't mean there isn't adversity, though. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. He was falsely imprisoned and then forgotten by the prisoners that he helped. And yet, the Lord was with him throughout the whole story. He had adversity, and yet he had an abundance of grace. Samuel saw both adversity and abundant grace. Jesus' path, of course, was one of suffering unto glory. The way of the crown is the way of cross from Genesis to Revelation. This is what I want you guys to understand. If you follow the Lord, if you choose him, you will prosper. What that doesn't mean <laughs> is that you will have an easy time of it. I'm sorry to be the one to tell you that, but there it is. You will not have an easy time of it, but you will, ha you will be prospered. You will have, in the midst of adversity, in the midst of adversaries, abundant grace. Now, you can go it alone, and you can reject him, and you'll, right? you may have an easy path unto the end, and then he will reject you. Or you can have all the adversity and the adversaries and no grace, and you just have to go it alone. And how does that work out for people? Right? We're not preaching a false gospel here when we say that those who choose the Lord and choose to obey him are prospered. But you're prospered like a son is prospered. Everyone who receives God's spirit, it, it, it's the same way. This is what we read in 1 Peter chapter 4, in verses 12 through 14. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of, of glory and of God rests upon you. What is the Christian life? It's a table set in the midst of our enemies. This is what David says in Psalm 23. Do you feel like you're just surrounded by enemies without the table? Turn to the Lord and ask, and ask of him, and what will he do? He will abundantly give you a feast in the midst of adversaries and enemies. He is not promising that there will not be adversity, that there will not be adversaries, that there will not be trouble. He's guaranteeing it. But what he's saying is that in it, I will be with you. And that's what this is about. Why is David prospering through this entire story? Because the Lord is with him. Right? Saul can come at him as much as he wants. Goliath can come at him as much as he wants. He's going to be attacked left, right, and center. And the reason that he prospers is because he's faithful to the Lord, and the Lord is faithful to him. They are covenanted together. And this is why so many people are attracted to David. He rises above all the petty politics. He rises above all of the nonsense. He is a man pursuing doggedly a single thing, the Lord. 
And that draws people to him. People want to celebrate that. People want to be a part of that. Right? Because think about it. Have you ever, right, in the midst of um, adversaries and difficulties, demonstrated that God's grace is with you and, and people don't really know what to do in the face of it? Have you experienced that before? Have you seen other people and you think, how is that person so calm right now? How is that person so at peace? How is that person acting so wisely when it's chaos all around them? And it's, it's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Lord is with them. The Lord is with them. Now, if we are those kinds of people, what sort of effect would we have on the culture around us? We would make this, the Christian life something more attractive. We would see that people are drawn to it. Because people are in the midst of adversaries and enemies, aren't they? Do you know people who are struggling at work, struggling at home, struggling in their own hearts and minds, struggling with addictions, struggling with, to pay the bills, struggling with their mortgages, struggle, struggle, struggle. And there are some people who have no visible struggles of any kind, and yet they're still struggling. And what we can't say is, you know, there's a way to not have any of those struggles. No. The gospel that we're preaching is that in the midst of those struggles, there is a feast, there is a table set for you by the Lord, because, and, and if, if you turn to him, he will be with you, and then what, what can separate you from the love of God? This is what we learn from this story. This is a story about the Christian life. Then we turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 6 through 9, and we see that the response, there's even a greater response to David. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistines, see, now we've gone back in time to talk about the post-Goliath incident, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, with musical instruments, and the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they've only described a thousand. <laughs> what more can he have now but the kingdom? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I wonder where the story's going now. And then here's the line that really, man, and Saul eyed David from that day on. Oof. So much, so much sinister foreshadowing in that verse. And Saul eyed David from that day on. Joyous dancing, joyous singing, accompanied by instrumental music, welcomes the victorious army home. Frankly, I'm wondering why they celebrated Saul at all. Right? If you know the story, why would they celebrate Saul at all? It seems very gracious that they would include Saul in the song. And instead of being grateful for it, he's very angry about it. In accordance with ancient Israelite customs, such as Miriam in Exodus chapter 15, Deborah in Judges 5, women composed songs with lyrics that memorialized the men's military successes and welcomed them home. Ladies, is this how you receive your men home at the end of the day? Here comes the victorious warrior, back from battling his own sanctification. <laughs> Ladies, you should try it. You should do it. Do a little singing, a little dancing at the door when he comes home. I have to say, when, when you come home and all the kids are dancing by the door, there is something about that. I mean, you know. But what we see here is that the brides of Israel receive home their champions with, joyful, with a joyful noise. Judges chapter 11, verse 33 through 34. And he struck them with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Japheth came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. 
This, how you re- this is how you receive home the victorious. This is how you receive home the people of God who have gone out and in faith defeated the enemies of God. You receive them with song and dance and instrumentation and joy at joyful noise. Now, not surprisingly, David is hailed as the epitome while Saul is put in second place. But that's very gracious of him, I would argue. A judgment which Saul had neither the maturity nor the security to accept. Saul's reaction to this couplet was predictable and intense. It is interesting that Saul had made the mistake earlier of listening to the voice of the people and is now enraged by the people's words. Earlier he couldn't, he, right? Oh, the people, they want this, they want that, I better do what they want. Now, right, they're praising somebody else. And, and one of his problems is that he's always listening to the noise. David, we're going to see, doesn't. You can praise him, you can curse him. As you see, right? There are people who praise him and he's grateful. He's like, cool, thanks. I appreciate that. Later, people are going to curse him and they're going to want to put that, the person who's cursing him to death. And David's like, whoa, whoa, we don't know. He could be speaking for the Lord. And so he just doesn't get worked up either way about the hype. And this is what happens to a lot of us, right? The Satan is very beguiling in this way. And he either comes at us with a great deal of, um, you know, this sort of words against us, or a lot of flattery. And both are very dangerous traps, as we see in Saul's life. And David is, is the example of, of what we should all do, which is rise above all the noise. Don't listen to the hype. Saul's faithfulness is crippled by listening to the hype. The voice of men over God is always in his ears, and you can see the trouble that it causes for him. Saul was angry because he's connecting David now. He, 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 in this moment, has a realization is exactly who it is that David is. He gets who David is now. In 1 Samuel 15, 28, he was told, and Samuel said to Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And this is why Saul is saying, what else can we give him but the kingdom itself? He's like, this is the guy. This is the guy that Samuel is talking about, and I liked him before, and now I don't like him. I was for him, now I'm not. And everything that happens now is you get to see Saul's heart. And it would be a terrible thing for any of us to have our hearts written and laid down in Scripture for everyone to see generation after generation for the life of the church. And in this, I do actually feel a great deal of empathy for Saul. Right? If, if you go back to events in your life where it was either really good or really bad, and, and then and the Lord recorded what was happening in your heart for the rest of us to read, how would we feel about that? And so, I, you know, I don't like to deride Saul. He's very... He's in... I just feel compassion for him. He's a man struggling and failing, and it's sad to watch. But we're told what's going on inside of his heart. We're told how to interpret events from this point on. He watches David now with jealousy. Both the Hebrew and Greek words for jealousy refer to an exclusive single-mindedness of emotion. He is extremely jealous. Now, jealousy is either morally blameworthy or praiseworthy, depending on the object and the intent. I, and modern people are very, right, we don't like the word jealousy. We associate jealousy as, as just with sin, always. But what I want us to understand is that what we also see here between David and, well, between Jonathan and David, is the proper kind of jealousy versus the improper kind of jealousy. When blameworthy, jealousy always ends in envy the antithesis to New Testament love and true Christian fellowship. We read this in 1 Corinthians 13.4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. James 
chapter 3, verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. The Bible, however, represents the, the other possibility of what is called a divine jealousy, a consuming, single-minded pursuit of a good end. Regarding idols, Yahweh says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Paul imitates this godly jealousy when he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, For I feel divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. He's talking to the church. Now, Jesus referred to himself as, as um, the bridegroom, and he said, Well, you know, when the bridegroom is there, the friends rejoice. And Paul is saying, I rejoice because I am the friend of the bridegroom, and I betrothed you, the people of God, to him. And he's jealous over the, the marriage between the Lord and the, and the church. Are you? And you're like, well, I, right? and this is where modern ethics, modern Christian ethics, comes up hard and fast against biblical ethics. Because we think we're really righteous because we've never been jealous. Right? Jealousy is a wicked, evil thing. And what you lose with that kind of nonsense, that sort of empty-headed, uh, rootless evangelicalism, is the fact that you're not even jealous of the things you ought to be jealous of. Right? Husbands, you ought to be jealous over your wives. Wives, you ought to be jealous over your husbands. We all ought to imitate Paul here, and we ought to be a little more jealous over one another's marriages. Are you jealous over the marriage of your friends? Or do you ever see things, right, and you're like, wow, man, you're like, well, that's none of my business. Like, no, you should be jealous for them. That means you should be jealous for them. That means your own conduct should be conducted in, in a particular way. You should also be jealous over them by, by protecting them from behavior that they're doing that's inappropriate. We have an extraordinarily difficult time with this, again, because we're used to the modern version of jealousy, which is what you, you turn like, the green beast, is that what they call it or something? The kids call it these days. I'm green with envy. I'm green with jealousy. We think it's always wicked. And I would say, <laughs> not only could you use a little more jealousy in your own marriage, you could use a little more jealousy over the, the marriages of your friends, and we could all use an unbelievable amount of more jealousy between Christ and his bride, the church. Because she is a whore. She's always been a whore. The prophets called her a whore. God called her a whore. The, the people of God often are out committing whoredoms. And what we don't often have are people who are zealous for the, the marriage between God and his people. Deuteronomy 32, 16. They stirred God to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. Zechariah 1, 14. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. Now, how do you think God feels right now about his church? Is she faithful to him? And, and oftentimes what we want to do is condemn the church, forgetting that we are, in fact, the church. <laughs> right? We're, we're the friend of the bridegroom. We ought to be jealous for this marriage covenant. We ought to uphold it, the exclusivity of it. And, that, and that's what I'm really talking about. Now, husbands, I don't mean... Right? Some man compliments your wife and you go home and you're green with envy and you're angry about it. That's not what I'm talking about. Right? Like, I saw you talking to so-and-so for more than two minutes. That's not what I'm talking about. The exclusivity of the marriage covenant. That is the thing that we all of us 
between us and God, us and our spouse, and our friends, we ought to be all a little bit more zealous about the exclusivity of our covenants. Now, here the brides of, of, of Israel come out to receive home the victorious army, and frankly, Saul is jealous. He's jealous because he wants to be the people's husband. He wants to be, he's the king, he's dad, he, he's the husband of Israel, he's the one who's supposed to be protecting it, he's the one who's supposed to be defending it, and what he is, he's been told he's been rejected, he's seen now, right, that who David really is, and what enters his heart is not repentance, what enters his heart is not rejoicing like his son Jonathan did, it's like, oh good, we've been replaced by somebody who isn't a dirtbag. No, what he becomes now is, is jealous and envious and murderous. This is the beginning of the opposition, his opposition to David. It's, it, it's interesting because the, when you say the Hebrew words for eyed and iniquity, they, they sound similar. They rhyme. So, so they're actually doing something very clever here in Hebrew. When, when he's saying he eyed him from that day forward, he gives him, in a sense, the evil eye. That's, that's what it's meant to sound like when you say it in Hebrew. <laughs> yeah, if, if looks could kill as we often say in our own day. If looks could kill at this moment, David would be dead because Saul would have killed him right there with all the dancing wives. He is going to do something iniquitous, and it doesn't take very long. 1 Samuel 18, verses 10 to 11. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. As he did day to day, Saul had a spear in his hand, and Saul hurled that spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall, but David evaded him twice. Okay, I mean, seriously. I just have to talk about masculinity for a moment. Saul is supposed to be a big, bad warrior, and he can't hit a dude sitting on the other side of the room who's distracted with a liar with a spear. Now, for no other reason, we ought to feel a little bit bad for him at that point. And not only that, he has to walk over there and pull the spear out of the wall, go back to his seat, and try it again. Right? And it's like, I, you just feel bad for him a little bit. You feel bad for him. It's like um, you go out to play catch with some kids, and the, and the other dad goes to throw the ball, and it just sort of slips out of his hand, falls on the ground. It's like, come on, man. Man up. And so for Saul in this moment, this is humiliating. Not only is he now a murderer in his heart, and he's actually attempting to murder someone, he can't even do it. And, and I think what we're going to see is part of the terror is this. How come he couldn't? Right? If, if, if you're a pretty good shot with a pistol and you go to the range and you practice all the time and then you actually have to go and shoot something in real life and you miss, you think, well, what, what, right? what's going on here? And, and so now there's, this is why Saul bec- starts to become extraordinarily troubled. Something is protecting David, even though he's trying as hard as he can to kill him. Someone or something is protecting David. And, and I was told by Samuel that the Lord's spirit was le- departing from me. God is departing from me. God is no longer with me. And now he must be with him. Because he's having all this protection that doesn't make any sense. Because, I mean, he's only 20 feet away, and, I, and, the, and the spear is six feet. So I didn't have to cover that much distance twice, and I still missed him. Now, what's extraordinarily odd here is that the word for, it says he raved at him. Now, that word in chapter 10, verses 10 through 11, was translated as prophesy. It's the same word. So, remember, is Saul amongst the prophets? And it was kind of a question that we didn't really get an answer to. 
Saul, when he first became king, went out and he prophesied amongst the prophets. And people were like, well, is Saul amongst the prophets? And now what we have is we, we see exactly the kind of prophet he is. He's raving. The difference between someone who's prophesying and someone who's raving is a hair's, hair's breadth. <laughs> right? As we see with John the Baptist, everybody thinks he's a bit of a madman. He's eating bugs and eating honey and wearing a camel coat, out, living out in the desert. You're like, that guy's a raving lunatic. Well, here, <laughs> right, we have Saul, and he just starts spouting off. And he'd done it before, and everybody's just... It's got to create a lot of confusion for everyone because David's the champion and David's the hero and he loves, he's going to make David his son-in-law and yet he's, he's throwing spears at him and they're not really sure. Is he just mad or was he being funny, right? Or now, and now he's just spouting off a bunch of words and they don't even record the words. What is he prophesying exactly? What is he prophesying about David? Now, according to 1 Kings 22, when a prophet prophesies and it doesn't come to pass, what you find out is that they are a false prophet, and God says, he says, in 18.22, Deuteronomy 18.22, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 18.22, he says, if they're a false prophet, don't fear them. What can they do? And so David, there's all this very dense stuff going on here. David immediately recognizes Saul is not someone to fear. He's a raving lunatic. An evil spirit has ascended upon him. I have the spirit of God. He's throwing the spirit at me. He can't even hit me. Clearly, right? Until the Lord calls me home, nothing can stop me. And, and so you have this sort of now, this politicking that goes on between them. There's a, no, at no point are we told what David actually thinks about this. We're not told what's going on in his heart. We're only told what goes on in Saul's heart. So that it's kind of a mystery. Why would David, after having a spear hole at him, sit there and let it happen a second time? Well, and here's another question. How many of us would let somebody throw a spear at us and not take the spear and throw it back? And we know David would hit him, right? I mean, if he can throw a 10-sized ball rock and knock out a giant, I think he can throw a spear across the room and hit Saul. And, and, and this story is full of this extraordinarily and rich um, echo Mytho po- or uh, this poetic description of what Jesus is like. David is very much like Jesus. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we're told, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to, whom, to him who judges justly. So, says, well, this is, this is a false prophet. I have nothing to fear. He's throwing spears at me, but just like on the battlefield, I had nothing to fear from Goliath. I have nothing to fear from Saul. And what you see is this equanimity that David has. He can face giants on the battlefield that are from the Philistines. He can face giants in the throne room that are Israelites. And either way, he's completely insecure in who he is and what he's going to accomplish. Goliath could kill him or not, but nobody's going to stand there and mock God. Saul can throw spears at me or not, but I'm not going to revile and, and, and hurt him because he's, first off, the anointed of the Lord. And second, he continues to play the liar because he really wants Saul to be healed. His devotion to Saul, as we're going to see, is unbelievable. He refuses to raise his hand against lawful authorities, and he keeps playing the music because he, he really wants Saul to be healed. Right? At any point, Jesus could have come down off the cross, but why did he continue to allow people to persecute him and to put him to death? It's because he really wanted to heal us. And this is why God in heaven looks down and says, yes, this man has a heart after me. This is the kind of man that I'm going to build a dynasty through because he gets it. He gets that when you're reviled, you don't revile in turn. When, you, when, when people commit violence against you, you don't, you don't do it back. 
You don't respond to this kind of thing like they do. You take a higher path. It says in James chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Now think about this. If you resist the devil, the devil comes and he tempts you, and he's trying to beguile you, and he's trying to, to get you to respond in anger. He's trying to get you to respond in violence. He's trying to get you to gossip. He's, he's tempting you and beguiling you. If you stand against him, he will flee. Why? It's the reason <laughs> that Saul flees from David. Because God is with him. When God is with you, this is what Romans was about. If God's with us, come what may. If God's with us, who's gonna, who can defeat us? If God is with us, we are more than conquerors. Now, how many of us respond to the difficulties in life that, that David is experiencing here? People angry with us, people reviling us, people throwing violence at us. We have difficult circumstances. We have adversaries and adversity here, there, and everywhere. And how many of us think, you know what? I'm resting in the hands of God. I completely give myself over to him. I'm going to resist this. I'm not going to take this bait. I'm not going to bite this apple. I'm going to refuse to play this game. And, and, and you know what happens when you do that is the devil flees. He runs away because he thinks, oh, no, David's here. God is here. Jesus is here. God is with this person, and I can't overcome this. Right? What do all of the demons in, in Mark do when they come up against Jesus? They're like, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Whoa, whoa, I know who you are. Oh, no, I know who you are. You're the most high. And, they were like, and he says, okay, go away. And they go, away. <laughs> right? And we are assailed on every side. And, and what we run into is our, the true unbelief in our hearts. If we stand firm because Jesus is with us, if we stand in him, who can stand against us? We have to truly believe this if we're actually going to push the darkness out of this world. We're going to push it out of our homes, push it out of our communities. It's remarkable. This is what David wants you to see Jesus. And in this story, that's all you see, or verse after verse after verse. Because what happens next is amazing. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 12 through 16. Saul was afraid of David. He's trying to kill him. And yet he's afraid of David. David it doesn't say that David's afraid of Saul. It says that Saul's afraid of David. Why? Because he stood his ground. He didn't act like Saul. He acted like God. And that's a terrifying thing to people who hate God. He stood his ground. So Saul removed him. He fled. He removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings. For the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. They feared David, the enemies of God. Saul fears him. We're going to see the Philistines fear him. Everyone fears him. And it's not, right, it's not because he's huge. It's not because he wears armor like the kings wear the armor. It's, it says very plainly, the Lord is with him. And if the Lord is with him, who can stand against him? If the Lord is with him, who can throw a spear and actually kill him? Now, what we have to do is really think hard about what David, how David is responding 
to Saul here? Does he revile him? Right? He's the authority. Does, does David say, well, listen, you are a wicked and evil king, and I'm going to raise an army, and I'm going to overthrow you, and I'm going to put you down like the dog that you are? Or does David entrust himself to the Lord who's with him? And does David think in his own mind, right? It's not telling us. It wants us to figure out what David is thinking. And if we read the rest of the scriptures, we understand exactly what David is thinking. The Lord is with me, therefore no one can stand against me. And, and, and this, right, everyone who recognizes the true and living God throws their crown rights at his feet, come receive him with song and dance and merriment because they understand that the Lord is with him. It confounds his enemies and fills them with awe and fills them with fear. But those who love the Lord recognize it. And, and, and this, is what, this is what the church is supposed to be. The Lord is with us. Christ is with you, each individual person. Christ is with you. He's with us. And my question then is who can stand against you? Right? And if, and if we sat down now and I handed out pieces of paper and I was like, who stood against you this week? The list would be long. The list would be long. Because time and time again, we forget who we are. We just plain forget it. We look around and we see all the things that are around us and all the things that are big and all the things that are scary and all the things that have power and all the things that are throwing spears at us. And we think, I'm overcome. I'm overcome. I'm overcome. And what God wants us to know is that he's with us. How do we know he's with us? Because he sent his only begotten son to walk amongst us to suffer with us, to suffer from us, so that he could then suffer with us in everything that we endure. If you are in Christ and Christ is in you, nothing can stand against us. And and I'm not not talking about going out and (laughs) go, we're going to overcome the Supreme Court because God is with us. We will, right? Just like Rome and just like all the other empires, the Byzantines, where are they now, right? I can get into all that. I'm, I'm not talking about that, though. I'm talking about those things, those lies, those spears that Satan threw at you this week that went home because you were walking in your own strength and you were fearing him more than you were fearing God. I'm going to go back to Romans 8, and this is what we... This is what we need to get down in our hearts and our minds and our bones. This needs to be the shield, the sword, the buckler. This is the armor of God. This is the armor that Jonathan put on. This is the armor that Jonathan gave David. This is the armor that Jesus gives us. Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We could take everything that happened to us this, just this week. We'll go back 10 years. We'll go back to the beginning of our lives. We could take every terrible thing and we could bring it and we could weigh it against the glory that is ours in Jesus Christ and the scale wouldn't move. It wouldn't move. Romans eight twenty six through 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words and who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. In your weakness, he does not come to you in your strength. 
when you didn't feel his presence, when you didn't feel his protection, when you were open to the attacks of the enemies this week, it's because you were walking in your own strength. But in your weakness, you don't even need to know what to say. You don't even need to turn to God and be like, well, what do I say to him? Because so often we don't pray, well, what am I going to tell him that he doesn't already know? Right? We, we, we don't, you don't even need to know what to say. He will, he will give it to you by his own spirit. You don't even need words. But it requires weakness. Do you have any of that? If you don't, come see me afterwards. We'll find it together. <laughs> Romans eight thirty one through 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Romans 8, 38 through 39. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Stand on that. I have nothing else to offer. There's nothing else that we could offer one another. What stands against you? Who cares? You're standing on this. Nothing will separate you from him. Nothing. And what do we do then? We throw our crown rights at his feet. We stand in our weakness and say, here, take my own armor. Take my own self-will. Take my crown rights. I don't need them. You're the king. You're my protection. And as the people of God, the bride of Christ, we rise up every week and we receive the Lord with, a, with merriment and song because he's victorious and he lets us do it week after week after week so that we can understand who we are. We are receiving again the victorious Lord who dwells in your hearts. You have received him. Receive him again. Stand on that and amen. Father, we thank you so much. For the words um, of your prophets, we thank you, Lord, for, for Jonathan and Joseph and David and Jesus. We pray, Lord God, that as we go from here, that we would go in our weakness, that your strength might work through us. We pray, God, that we would go from here and that we would stand on Christ, that nothing may stand against us in him. We thank you and we praise you for your goodness and your abundant grace. And at this table, Lord, we, I pray now that we would feast abundantly, that we would raise our voices and that we would receive again the champion of our hearts. And amen.